Hello, everybody. Welcome to the end of the year Criterion Cast's best of the year episode. This is episode 212. Um, I'll alert our listeners going in. We have two handicaps going into tonight. One is that our uh, longtime host of these episodes, Ryan Gallagher, could not be with us tonight. So you're stuck with me, Scott, and I, uh, resuming some hosting duties from long back. The other handicap is that I am not nearly as eloquent as our uh, fine contributor and frequent recent host of late, Jornesso, in terms of summarizing things. So I would just say that, of course, 2020 has been a year from hell for most of us. Hope we can provide some small comfort along the way and uh, hope you enjoy our discussion tonight. I know Criterion has given a lot of us some nice bedrock to fall back on as many upheavals have taken place. So glad we can all take the time to come reflect on all that for a little bit. Joining me tonight is a very fine panel who I, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. You know, maybe one or two of them I would trade for Ryan, but not the whole batch. You know, that's <laughs> that's too many. I, I I couldn't give up all four of these fine gentlemen. And we don't um, need to get any more specific than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm gonna leave you all guessing all night to see who was really disposable in my mind. Uh, so joining me tonight is, uh, of course, couldn't do this without David Blakesley. David, how are you? Uh, Scott, it's great to uh, be back again together. You know, this is a uh... Definitely an annual tradition. I think I might be the only person who's been on all of these going back to 2010, I think is when we did our first end of the year episode. So, wow. yeah, despite all the challenges and disruptions and things going on in our lives and in this world, uh, this is a top priority for me to be here. So uh, thanks for uh, hosting it tonight. Looking forward to a great conversation. For sure. Also have from Criterion Now, uh, thinking back on Criterion then for a change of pace, Aaron West. <laughs> Hello, and uh, again, have not been on as many of these as as David, but been on a handful, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Oh, I'm sure you're not as disposable as I'm making it sound. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, glad glad you can make it. Glad you Thanks, pitched Scott. in. Uh, it's good to have you on the the main program, as we sometimes put it. Uh, joining us, uh, longtime contributor to the main episodes, hasn't been on recently, but couldn't be more thrilled to have him back. Trevor Barrett. Trevor, how are you? I am good. Thanks, Scott. I, I, and I appreciate I appreciate you taking the duties. This is so much fun to be here, and I'm looking forward to hearing what each of you have to say. Just like old times. And, of course, the uh, aforementioned Jordan Esso, uh, who did not, I guess, would, did not prepare uh, some eloquent introduction for us, but who I no, don't doubt will bring the poetry tonight in one form or another. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Good evening, you guys. Yeah, I think this is the fourth one of these that I've been on in a row and it just it's one of my favorite holiday events to be on the mic with you guys so really happy to be here very happy to have you um so yeah we're gonna plow right on through things uh wanted to kind of start with a general overview of the year and this is where I'll definitely be leaning back on some of the more uh, completionists in our field uh, I've not been I'm no, I've never been a criterion completist myself and always felt intimidated by some of your collecting habits um this year especially, I picked up fewer individual releases in favor of the larger box sets, with, which Criterion definitely uh, overindulged us this year. So some of you guys will have a better sense of the various trends and ups and downs and highlights from this year. But wanted to kind of start with any opening thoughts. I mean, I know for, for me, um, kind of getting back into my home video collection now that I can't go out to rep screenings or even new theatrical releases as much, and after a while, there's only so much streaming I can take, you know, the compression rates and the buffering and all that. It's, it's nice to be able to fall back and just 
have a disc on hand that will perform well and will look as good as some of these Criterion releases have been. And mostly I've just been amazed that Criterion has kept up this entire year. You know, when the pandemic started, I thought maybe things would slip a little bit. They wouldn't be able to keep up the four or five releases every month. But sure enough, they've been churning them out all year. And to my mind, in really exceptional quality. I mean, some of the releases we'll talk about tonight are some of the best that I own or have ever seen. Uh, the quality of the transfers, the thoughtfulness of the supplements, even like all the Zoom recording ones they did. The whole batch has been, I think, for me, really wonderful. Um, so, yeah, if there's anything you guys want to kind of spotlight in an overview sense before we get into specifics, now would be the time, uh, starting with David. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, if you're going to give a sort of a state of the criterion speech, I think, uh, you know, the brand is strong and, and, and really almost dominant and, and as uh, influential as ever. You know, they've they've treated us to a really outstanding uh, selection of movies of, of all different, you know, sorts. Um, you know, the diversity, uh, the emphasis on, you know, uh, black directors, female directors, world cinema. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about some of that in more detail, but I think they've really, um, you know, just strengthened their um, their position as a kind of the, the, the top shelf purveyor of home cinema. Uh, you know, at a time, you're right, when, when, you know, disc sales and physical media is sort of seen to be on the way out. And, of course, they've got a big streaming component that's kept their brand very vital and very you know, in front of uh, viewers of all different sorts. Um, so I'd say, you know, Criterion is an is a advantageous of a position as they've ever been, you know, and yes, I am one of those completionists. I do enjoy the ability to add discs and keep my, you know, spine number sequence completely intact and all of that. But even I haven't watched everything, you know, I've got my own podcast, I've got my own kind of habits of what I choose to watch and, and all of that. Um, so there's, there's a lot that's on my shelf that I haven't gotten around to yet. But uh, all, all in all, this has been a pretty outstanding year and, you know, really one of Criterion's very best uh, over their very lengthy history as far as, you know, home cinema, physical media, all of that is concerned. Trevor, anything to add there? Well, I just think back on 2020 at the beginning when we got the New Year's drawing from Jason Pullen uh, that looked limited at first. You know, there were basically four clues. But when you think about it, those four clues really foretold uh, uh, big releases and how many films actually were kind of hidden in those clues. You know, maybe not explicitly, but, you know, how many films are in the Varda set? How many films in the Fellini set and in the Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee set? And then, you know, while it didn't come out in 2020, the upcoming Wong Kar Wai set. And this really, to me, has been a year where it's like, okay, the, the Criterion is moving into the big boxes. They, they, they've tested that water and apparently have found it nice and uh, comfortable. So they're, they did two this year of the big ones, you know, these massive sets, the Varda and the Fellini. And I think that it looks like it might just continue on that way in some, in some regard. And so I, I'm glad to see that they are finding um, a pathway to continue to release uh, you know, a lot of films and and still packing it with these individual releases each month that I find a lot of joy in and still treating us with these just premium releases that, you know, become this part of my, you know, home decor in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know for me, uh, as something of a budget collector, the box sets are definitely a boon for me. I, you know, if I can get 14 Fellini films for the price of six or so regular releases, that's quite an advantage um aaron what has stood out to you 
Well, it's it's hard to look at 2020 in a positive light. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, uh, mid-year, I, I think I in some Facebook group, group I mentioned, uh, this is the best uh, criterion year in memory, and somebody called me out saying – Aaron West is the first person that said best year is 2020. (laughs) (laughs) But I I, thank you, Criterion. I mean, just like a lot of us, Criterion, they're a business and they had to pivot to to remote working. And I think they did so without uh, losing a step for the most part. Um, And and Michael Hutchins, I got to give him a shout out. He he posted his uh, year in review and and it's really been stunning. Just quite a year. And, And yeah, just thank you, Criterion, for bringing all this uh, beautiful art into our lives. So he mentioned the box sets. He called out that there were six box sets. Of course, Varda, Fellini are the big ones, but there are others as well. And uh, and just the overall new films added. Uh, there's 136 films, uh, according to Michael, up 62 from 2019. So, so David, I'm with you. I, I usually try to keep up with these as they, they come along, and we're in a pandemic, so I have a little more free time. But no, I still have not finished the, uh, the year's slate either, although I'm I'm getting close, so hopefully over the holidays. Uh, but yeah, challenging year, but they've they've come through. So, and it's been a yeah a solace for all of us. Yeah, absolutely, Jordan. Anything you wanted to touch on? Well, I think David nailed it when he said that Criterion is like in the strongest possible position that that it's ever been in because this year, you know, it really continues to expand the brand, especially like on the pop pop cultural front. We got you know this huge box set of Bruce Lee films, but we get more you know mainstream fare like Prince of Tides, you know, it continues to still shepherd and, and, and foster interest in avant-garde cinema or art house cinema, you know, bringing things like Pro LeFou back into the fold. So we can see some Studio Canal stuff reappearing. Um, you we got international cinema, domestic cinema. So like pretty much anything Criterion has shown an interest in, it continues to like follow that thread, but at the same time expanding the boundaries. So yeah, it's just been, it's been another great year. Physical media still feels very strong. Um, and not to put too much of a point on it, but it's interesting to see the expansion into things like Parasite and The Irishman, things that premiered on, you know, a digital platform, um, but getting that physical release through Criterion is also very cool. Yeah, for a while it was just like IFC movies that they would release new editions of kind of first time, and for some of these, like Parasite, it had its own Blu-ray and 4K release before Criterion got to it. Oh, right, that's true. Criterion has definitely uh, expanded its vendors, probably as its reputation has grown. You know, a company like Netflix might not want to invest in their own home video arm, but if they can offload it to Criterion, get a little of that prestige with it, it really makes sense for a lot of people. Um, well, all of us kind of touched on the box sets, of course, um, and we wanted to spend a little time separately on especially the Varda and Fellini sets, mostly to keep them out of our own top three picks for the year so that we didn't all have maybe two of the same three, but probably at least one of the same three. Um <laughs> I know for me, uh, the Varda set especially is maybe my favorite thing that Criterion has ever done. It is such a fine and lovely release on every front. Not just the fact that it includes every one of her films, which is something Criterion, for rights reasons, is so rarely able to do. And I, really looking at the breadth of this, I can't believe they were able to do it even here. Um, but it's just really beautifully put together. It's a nice compact set, too, so it's easy to pull off the shelf and pop in something on a whim. Uh, we'll get into the Fellini set in a bit, but that's a little more cumbersome with that, or even the Bergman set from last year. But the Varda set's really nice and small, and in the design of it, it all just really reflects her personality well. Um, I, too, have not watched nearly all the films in it, but the handful I have and the ones I've kind of sampled, the transfers really look exceptionally good. 
and the supplements, the new ones they produce, they all are just so loving and appreciative of uh, this filmmaker who I think meant a great deal to a lot of us in a lot of ways because her films were so personal. We felt like we kind of knew her through it. I think that her death kind of hit hard, at least it did for me. I know that. And getting this uh, is such a great tribute to her. And I just love having on my shelf just to look at and just to reference and to just slide in a disc to watch, you know, she made these like five minute shorts. It's really easy to get kind of a taste of that Varda magic um, through this. Or if you want to spend longer, you can watch her what 10 part uh, TV miniseries. You know, I mean, the uh, kind of depth of her work is pretty astounding. And that criterion gathered it all here is just exceptional. Um, yeah, I, we didn't really discuss a specific order to go through here, but I do want to kind of open it up on each box set if anyone wants to jump in. Um, on the Varda set specifically. Well, I'll, I'll jump in just because I, I I had the luxury of watching the entire box set from start to finish, including oh, including that that miniseries, all the supplements, and um and I, I guess it was over the summer, so you you might call that binge watching, although I'd seen many of the films before, um and it's just such a delight, and and not many sets you can do that. I you couldn't do that with Bergman, uh, probably not Fellini. Uh, but Barda is just so refreshing, and even though her even her challenging art films, you know they're they're yeah, it, they're easy to watch, even well, clear from five to seven, you know not not the most pleasant film, but um, but uh, enlightening in its own way. And uh, and the, the documentaries are really what uh, stuck out to me from the seventies and eighties, and uh, and it's it's just yeah, as you mentioned, Scott, it's amazing that Criterion can get the full body of work, and we're talking what six decades I mean, that's a long long time and yeah uh barda hit me hard uh her her loss and um and after finishing the set it's like we don't have uh, there's no more to watch but um but i'm certainly glad that we have that and yes it would certainly be uh, at the top of my list if we were not excluding it beautiful set yeah i've just scratched the surface i watched the first disc i've watched the entire first disc i also watched nausicaa which is a uh sort of a deep supplement on disc seven uh it's a feature-length film but uh, only one copy exists and that's a work print it was never properly finished and i think I covered that in my end of the year episode that's a 1971 film that was made for tv and and was censored i mean truly censored impounded all the elements destroyed so just that one surviving print is a bit of a miracle but what strikes me about this set is just how superbly realized it is i mean it, it really does feel like uh as as much as uh, a, a a box of physical media can capture the essence of a person this one does or at least the artistic side of of varda but i, I it seems like the personal and the artistic were pretty closely meshed you know she wasn't just out there doing a job she was pouring herself into her art and i think that's what makes her such a a magnet and such a a touchstone for sure so many people and it is it's it's a, it's a beautiful tribute i mean you definitely get the sense that she was um very actively involved as well as her children they're they're pretty prominently featured in the supplements and uh, you know she knew like everybody else we're all mortal and that the you know the clock is ticking and as her years uh, accumulated and and uh, you know she recognized that this was going to be you know coming to a close um she she put this thing together and and uh, entrusted it to Criterion to kind of put the finishing touches on and it's it really is it's it is an outstanding uh, almost unparalleled release. You know, you can you can argue as to whose films are more important or which ones hit us on a more personal level, but 
it, it's hard to think that Criterion's ever going to really top this in terms of, um, you know, paying tribute to a, a truly great filmmaker. So yeah, it's a, it's pretty uh, an amazing release, and and definitely would have been my number one if it had been part of a, a top three ranking. Trevor Jordan, you guys want to add on? I would just say yeah, the bittersweetness that Aaron touched on there, that this is a complete view of a filmmaker's entire body of work, um, makes me wonder to what extent she'll um, continue to participate you know, in future releases, like standalone releases for Florida by Agnes, which is, to me, one of the highlights of that set. Um, and I hope so. I hope we start to see those individual releases, because I think she deserves that continued presence. Whereas like with someone like Pierre Tex or you know, Jean Vigo, we get that complete collection of films and then that's that's really the volume that, that you have um and they to some extent kind of disappear from the brand in a way afterwards yeah that's a good point um it'll be interesting to see as with a lot of these boxes if things eventually get spun out well and i'll just say i i don't have this one yet but it's one that i'm excited to to pick up it came out in august and that just wasn't a time when i was able to go and and and, and snag it um but Correct me if I'm wrong, you know, even thinking of box sets that are, you know, kind of mainline releases, uh, isn't she the basically the the only woman filmmaker to be highlighted in a box set in, in almost any way or have her films put together? And this happened before with the four by Agnes. Um, but here we have her complete filmography. And I think that that's uh, both uh, wonderful that it's her. And I also hope that we get some more gems in a way, you know, it, it does it, it it does show Criterion um, uh, doing doing something uh, right. Not to say that they've been doing things wrong, but you know this is uh, kind of going along with their promise to keep on highlighting women filmmakers. Uh, but I don't think there's another box set that has you know a compilation of women filmmakers' uh, works. And so I, I'm very excited to get this for many of the reasons that you have all touched on. I'm not incredibly familiar with her work other than what was already available um, from Criterion. But I've been amazed every time I pop in one of her films to to see how I respond to it personally and not just artistically or, oh, that's really well done. But, you know, it kind of speaks to my soul and and um, and helps me to see things differently. And I, I love that about her her films. So I'm, I'm excited to get it. But, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm just glad that she got got such a, a highlight. And I hope they continue to find other filmmakers, other women filmmakers uh, that they can do, if not this comprehensive omnibus, you know, massive set, at least, you know, something like the Wong Kar Wai set or, uh, you know, the Demi set or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that gets us into uh, certainly one of the more storied uh, people in the Criterion Collection, Federico Fellini. His hundredth, the 100th anniversary of his birth uh, took place this year, and we'll... We were robbed, unfortunately, of a great theatrical tour of uh, his films, but with there being no theaters available, um, we at least got this very fine, um, if slightly cumbersome box set uh, that we can all take <laughs> down. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of this release in general. I mean, I, I adore Fellini. I always have. And having these films in a single volume at a relatively easy price point um is a real treat and especially those that hadn't been available before or are now available in new transfers pretty much top to bottom uh the presentation of these films is pretty exceptional i do wish they'd done a new scan of little little chivita because i've never loved criterion's blu-ray of that and it looks so good on film and there's so much depth to the image that the blu-ray doesn't quite capture but for the most part um 
I've at least sampled every disc in this box. The only mm. film in here I haven't seen is Variety Lights, um, which is odd. That's the release and shortest, and I still haven't seen it. But um, otherwise, I've been really pleased with this release on the whole, other than the packaging, which I feel like uh, has perhaps discouraged me from taking it off the shelf a few more times than I maybe would have liked. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, it's hard to argue with. Uh, you really get uh, the scope of Fellini's career from the earliest stage to almost his last film. Um, the supplements are really in-depth, and you get to see a lot of him at work, which is pretty incredible for the era in which he was working. And a lot of really good reflective commentaries. Both the booklets are really cool, and I do like that they have these two kind of separate, very distinct volumes in here. Um, so there's a lot to really appreciate about this release, for sure. It's not obviously on par with the Varda. I mean, it'd be hard to top a completionist thing like that, but... It, it's a really fine look, and I think as much as I, you know, mourn the absence of maybe City of Women, um, it's hard to argue with the title Essential Fellini. You really get a sense of his importance and what he contributed. Uh, does anyone else have any thoughts there? Well, r- really quick, if you'll let me go first this time, so I don't sure. cap it off <laughs> with a really anticlimactic, I don't have this yet. <laughs> I actually, so sitting right here by me, I do have the cardboard box it came in. But my wife opened that and then wrapped it up and put it under the Christmas tree. So I still have not seen, <laughs> other than pictures online, what this looks like and, you know, opening it up and, and feeling through it. Um, but I'm very You're excited. not alone, Trevor. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> That's good to hear. Good to hear. But I was really excited about this one because Fellini's, you know, going back a few decades was one of the first directors that, you know, along with Berkman, kind of got me opening my eyes to world cinema and uh, other kinds of cinema in general than what was just out there on the, uh, you know, at the at the Megaplex or, well, back then, what was just playing at the, at the local theater. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited about it. But I didn't want that to be the last word if I came up last this time. So I'll sure. turn it over to people who have been able to dive in. Well, I, I've cracked the box open. I've looked through the books. It's it's a beautiful set. I mean, yeah, I, maybe I'll just go with the quibbles. You know, I, when you look at the the way the discs are laid out, there's like an empty space where disc 16 should be, you know. And so that would have been nice if they could have either gotten Casanova's City of Women or, or one more feature. It would have been nice if they'd gotten the bit from the Boccaccio 70, the, the, the segment that he did for that uh, omnibus film. So, you know, setting that aside... Lini, though, to kind of tantalize you with something like, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, well, exactly. And, and yeah, and I do love that there's so much of Fellini as he became kind of this larger than life figure, uh, kind of like Bergman. You know, there's a lot of making of the film uh, documentaries featuring Ingmar Bergman and Fellini sort of, you know, sometimes he puts himself out there. Sometimes he's the subject of other people's uh, chronicles. They they want to capture what the great maestro, the genius is is doing this time. And, and so you do get a, a sense of Fellini's kind of colossal impact on, on on really popular culture mainstream culture outside of just the you know strict art house cinephiles and and you know Fellini's reach was was really big and and I think this is a, a great way of extending that and maybe even introducing Fellini to uh, a new generation and and uh, getting people to really look at his body of work as a you know not just something that, that happened way back long ago but he's 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 incredibly innovative and 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 bold and creative and and challenging and so yeah there there's a lot to enjoy here i think they they came up with a very very nice package yeah the the, the record album box set kind of dimensions um but you know it, it it's 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 kind of it's a one of a kind its own thing um but you know 
uh, Criterion has done Kurosawa, now Bergman, now Fellini. Those that is kind of like the, you know, the 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 top trinity, if you will, of the of the Criterion canon. And uh, so each of these uh, great directors has gotten their centenary uh, tributes. And uh, again, just another really rich set uh, that you know kind of makes this a pretty unforgettable year for Criterion. I have a question for folks who have this set. I mean, first of all, I guess my brief review in absentia since I don't have it. But I mean, you can't have a set with eight and a half Amarcord, Dolce Vita, new HDs of Julie to the Spirits, Lestrada and Variety Lights. And I mean, it's just this thing is just epic. And just it would oh, yeah. be my number one it if, if uh, we hadn't eliminated it because the lasting impact of this guy. So just from a film canon point of view, but just as a just as a like a continued like experience of enjoying great films these films just knock me out so um really exciting i love the packaging um there are i think this is the second example of this i'm trying to search my mind what the first one is it might have actually been the bergman set where on the website they create individual artwork like little thumbnails to sit to the left of the titles as they list them and then that artwork doesn't appear in the box set is that the case with this okay because I, I love I'm those little sure, unless I miss something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the book is the only place it could appear because I don't think it's definitely not you know anywhere else. There's kind of like when you first kind of open the lid of it, there's a collage of faces that are similar to the art, but the kind of individual art they have there is not really reflected in the set. Okay. Right. Yeah, with the yeah, sleeves, I, I don't see how they could do that. Um, yeah, I, I have cracked open the set, and I'm, I, I have not binge-watched it. Uh, I, I love Fellini, and I've seen most of the films, unfortunately, but he's not a, a binge-watch kind of guy. But um, but yeah, to Jordan's point, I, I think as a filmmaker, it's really a treat to see the evolution. And uh, so I, I'm now uh, maybe a fifth of the way. I'm, I'm going to finish uh, um, uh, La Strada after this podcast tonight. So uh and but the, see his stylistic changes through the years, uh, beginning with Variety Lights, Scott. I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I was surprised by by it, and uh, and now I'm, I'm getting into the more introspective, uh, artistic side, and then soon we'll get to the more uh, flamboyant, um, maybe a little people would call it indulgent period. And then uh, I, I guess afterward, it's really just bad shit, but weird. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I love it all. And so, no, I, I wouldn't compare it to Varda. I think really the packaging here, not to minimize the films, but the packaging is special and it is unique. Uh, Dave Eves actually called it like a board game packaging, which kind yeah, of it's very similar to that. compared to others, it, it kind of seems like it. But, uh, yeah, it's a treasure. And I, I look forward to watching his films. Fortunately, we, yeah, they did leave us with a little bit more to um, to seek on our own. So it won't be the last of Fellini when we finish this. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Oh, yeah. Have any of you popped in Knights of Kiberia to see yes. how it looks? How does it look, Scott? I, re- I rewatched the whole film, actually, because I hadn't seen it in about 10 years since it's been out of print for so long. Uh, I I didn't mean to skip past the, how good the transfers are in favor. I know I kind of ragged on one of them, but uh, the rest of the transfers are really, mm-hmm. really incredible, especially the black and white films, I think. Um, oh, are among the best black and white okay. transfers I've seen. Yeah, you had me nervous there for a second because <laughs> honestly, that's one of the reasons I bought the set was to upgrade that dang DVD that I don't think yeah. looks very good at all. <laughs> no, yeah, you'll the... definitely not regret it there. That and like eight and a half are kind of the two points in comparison I really had for sure. But the rest are, are just stunning. Yeah, the ones I've seen from start to finish, uh, which are the early ones, just look great. So 
yeah, really strong rest- restorations. I think all of them have, were done over the last couple of years in Italy. So, yeah, really, really great box set. So that's one thing that stood out to me is just this was the year of the box set, I think. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly hope Criterion keeps churning out uh, their box sets. Um, it's a great budget pick. It's a great way to spotlight these great filmmakers. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward. To, I know there's a lot of controversy about the Wong Kar Wai set already, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I have one quick editor's correction before we get into the top sure. three in the cover. Um, you corrected me when I said Parasite. I did mean to say Roma, not not Fellini's Roma, but Koran's Roma as the oh, uh, sure. release that premiered digitally. Yeah. So don't email oh, Criterion good. Cast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, getting into cover art, wherever you really like to pick one cover a piece. Um, I know for me in the past, uh, so I'm not, I don't have the most designy brain, um, but kind of thinking through it this year, uh, you know, Criterion's cover art is widely acclaimed and rightly so. And in many ways, kind of like the first editorial statement on the film, it's an idea you can fixate on or consider as you get into the film that maybe wouldn't be otherwise spotlighted. It's a way of kind of creating a critical reflection of the film before you even get to it. Um, and in that spirit, the one I picked uh, was the cover for Jean Renoir's Tony, which kind of is a beautiful illustration in and of itself. It's very eye-catching, which is kind of Criterion's bread and butter. But it also spotlights this moment in the film that uh, it kind of comes and goes. It's not really one that they keep returning to, but it viewing it through the lens of Criterion's cover, this uh, image of a woman with a small bug on her back, um, it's kind of the decisive moment within the film and the moment on which the rest of the film hinges. Um, so it was interesting that Criterion chose it. And then just the illustration all around, uh, unfortunately, I forgot to note the illustrator's name, but uh, it's a such a stunning cover. And It's, it's Catherine Lamb. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a really stunning painting. And um, it... I probably would have picked it up anyway because I love Renoir and I love his 30s stuff and 30s French and pretty much any French cinema, but especially 30s and 40s French stuff. I kind of am instantly attracted to, but the cover guaranteed I would buy it right away and really sucked me into the film and gave me a fresh perspective on it even before I had seen it. So I really appreciated that. Uh, Trevor, well, oh, no, I just want to say it's, it's kind of a visualization of a scene because you never really see that true, moment yeah. at that that's angle. True. It doesn't present itself it's the artist kind of kind of bonding with the movie and kind of casting her own vision. Uh, so I really appreciated that kind of, uh, kind of the subtlety of that gesture of, of, of choosing that moment and de- depicting it the way that she did. Yeah. Uh, Trevor, what was your favorite cover? Well, I will say Tony was uh, in contention, so I'm glad you picked it, Scott. Um, but uh, I will move on to my favorite. <laughs> I had a hard time with this one this year, guys. Uh, there wasn't one there. There were many that I really admired. There wasn't one that really smacked me and, you know, upside the head. Um, but there were a lot that I really enjoyed. And so the one that I went with is the gunfighter. And this is an illustration, kind of a black and white illustration with some with some kind of red highlights, which, you know, similar to what they did a little bit earlier in the year with Destry Rides again. Um, but this one here for the gunfighter is by is an illustration by Jennifer Sorry, Jennifer, if you ever hear this, I do not know how to say your last name. Dionisio, perhaps. Um, and it shows Gregory Peck in the foreground, uh, sitting at a table, got his drinks, and then way in the background, with all the lines pointing toward them, is you know a bunch of men from the town watching him, looking at him. 
he's not looking at them. He's off into the distance. He's, you know, maybe trying to avoid them or something. But I had not seen the film before Criterion announced they were releasing it. And uh, this cover just intrigued me. It pulled me in. I wanted to I wanted to understand more about Gregory Peck, the gunfighter. You know, certainly some of that's because it's Gregory Peck. But I, I really like this cover. I like that it showcases also some of the, the angle work and some of the, the film you know style of this by a director that I also do not know, which is Henry King. I don't know um, him by name. Um, I don't know too much about his other work. And so this just uh, kind of opened up a, a, the film for me and, and uh, an excuse to go and explore a little bit, too, besides just to get excited for a good, a good film. Yeah, I would also add that uh, Criterion has kind of an iffy reputation with doing covers for classic Hollywood films, and this is one that really lands uh, very well and is super intriguing. I also like where they place the director credit kind of along those floorboards and uh, kind of providing a foundation, as mm-hmm. it were. Yep, and it almost it almost highlights the the angles and the fun, because the film has a lot of, of, of really nice visual style to it, and that almost says, here's the director, we're going to make sure this calls attention to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Aaron, what about you? You yeah, have a very the, uh, confrontational cover. <laughs> yeah, well, it, as as Trevor indicated, it, this was a tough year, and actually both of these, uh, Tony and the Gunfighter, were both in contention. I I, I love the the B uh, moment from um, from Tony, and I I agree that kind of signifies the film. I chose uh, Come and See, which is uh, it's from uh, I think its name I, I might mispronounce his first name. It's uh, Jackson Northen, and that's J A X O N. So if I got that wrong, I apologize, but he's a portrait artist and, um, and I, I'm just, I'm holding the disc here and I, I just love the way he captured the, the, the kid actor from, um, from come and see, uh, not, not the most iconic, uh, image of the film. Uh, I think you, you, if you just Google come and see, you'll see lots of, um, um, startling, uh, 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 reactions from this, this child. Um, it's just really kind of just him sitting there uh, living in misery, which I think encapsulates the film. Uh, really well done. And, yeah, he's he's a portrait artist. I've been looking at some of his other work. Um, I think this is his first for Criterion, so I hope he does some more. But, yeah, Criterion, there's a, a large uh, uh, history of, of them getting great illustrations, and this just continues in that vein and uh, finding new uh, new great artists. So, yeah, come and see. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to mention with you saying this is his first set. Criterion keeps finding new people to add to their roster. You know, it'd be so easy to rely on some of their former artists who have all done great work. Like, there'd be no reason not to go back. But I'm so glad they keep expanding who they go to. Uh, Jordan, you have perhaps even a more confrontational cover pick. See, this is good to know. I didn't know that Come and See was uh, controversial, nor this choice. But before I jump (laughs) into my choice, I just also mentioned that... um, the artist there, Jackson Northen, did an interior piece of artwork for the booklet um, of like the Hitler scarecrow that is also very gripping mm. and very cool. Um, I chose the cover for Crash, uh, and this is a cover painted by Phil Hale. Sounds like like all of you, I'm, I'm often drawn to the the painted covers. Um, I think Tony was a really big standout, but this cover to me just really fit the film it's it the painting is beautiful the the palette is beautiful you know it's a bracingly erotic film and it's a really good film i, I kind of like i kind of slipped this in as my number four choice if i could um and so you get this bracingly erotic cover that, that fits the film um i love the vertical composition of the text i love how jarring that is even though it's such a simple decision to just kind of like 
crash the vertical and horizontal together like that. Um, and the flesh of the lovers is kind of painted in the same hues as the body of the of the car. And so you get this really nice uh, exercise of expressing the way that bodies overlap. Um, you know, there's there's body boundary issues, not only between people, but between people and and inanimate objects. And the car, it interrupts their their head specifically, like literally it's replacing their head space, um, ex expressing that, that confusion of boundaries, like hybridizing the sexual impulses and stimulus and, and the risk of mutilation and dismemberment. So it's very striking. It's also very fitting. Um, I just really love this cover. It's a stunner for sure. It, uh, it certainly grabs the eye. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, David, you have a similarly eye-grabbing pick? Well, yeah. You know, in the years past, I think last year, I actually went with the Bergman trilogy, uh, the uh, Winter Light, uh, Through a Glass Darkly, The Silence, because I liked the packaging and the texture and the just the feel and the heft of it. The, this year, I just went with the visuals. And my criteria, I guess, for this year is what would I like to put on my wall as a poster <laughs> if it was made available? So I went with War of the Worlds. And I guess if you were here with me in my little office slash recording studio, You'd see the very garish color schemes of posters for like the Beatles' Yellow Submarine and 2001 Space Odyssey and this print of the Royal Tenenbaums and the War of the Worlds with all of its explosions and bright reds and yellows and greens and the big gaudy, you know, font and, and just the, the kind of alarming uh, scene that's being depicted there. You know, the Martians blowing up the earth and, you know, this devastation that's uh, afflicting humanity. It just kind of thematically blends in with my environment here. So uh, I just said, well, you know, that's the one I would throw up on my wall. Uh, but there really were so many outstanding packages. I think the Carl Zeman set is pretty sensational just because of the, you know, the, the, the texture, the 3D pop-ups and, and the, the die-cut illustrations. The Bruce Lee has a great kinetic energy. Uh, but War of the Worlds was the one that I said, ah, I, I dig it. And I know that there's detractors out there, but uh, I think it, it captures the, the style of that film and, and the, the, the message, the kind of, uh, you know, four alarm fire, the, the blaring warning of, of doom and devastation. Uh, I kind of dig it. So that's my choice. Absolutely. Well put. Well, now we can get into our top three releases proper. And I would go first, but my pick will be someone else's pick higher up in the ranking. So oh, I'll save you know. that as a slight. No, I, I want to save okay. it as a slight mystery. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. And then I'll, I'll kind of join in on that discussion then when, when we come to it. Um, so instead, we'll throw first to Trevor for his number three pick. Oh, oh boy, I wasn't ready. I thought I had at least a minute. Um, <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> Trevor rewrites his whole list. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am good to go. My, let me start by saying that the way that I that I tried to whittle this down this year, it, it was harder than it's been in years past again for some reason. Or maybe it's always this hard. I just finally get over it and, and move on. Uh, but I picked movies that I had not seen um, until recently and that I kind of considered discoveries of the year and that I had a really kind of deep, um, you know, deep impact on me personally, maybe not always because of the film, but maybe because of the setting of where I was watching it. And this first one is kind of like that. And I'm picking uh, Preston Sturgis's the lady Eve, which we got upgraded to Blu-ray this year from an old DVD uh, this was maybe never going to happen, it sounds like, from interviews that we've gotten with uh, Lee Klein over the years. It sounds like he wanted to wait until they had better elements. 
And those elements were probably never going to show up and haven't, to my knowledge, shown up since. But finally, it looks like Peter Becker, you know, again, based on an interview with, with Klein, said, you know, does this mean we're just not going to ever release this film on Blu-ray? And so they, they went for it. And I do think it looks great. You know, I'm sure there are some limitations. And if my eye were like Lee Klein's, I'd maybe, oh, dang it, that doesn't look as good as it could. But it's such a wonderful film. And I got to sit down and watch it with my wife, which is one of the main reasons that I that I put it on the list. Uh, you know, we don't watch a lot of these movies together. She doesn't enjoy them the same way that I do. Uh, but this one was was so much fun. You know, it's such a clever movie. Barbara Stanwyck is wonderful in this movie. The way that she uh, banters and uh, cuts Henry Fonda down to size, um, it's just delightful. And I, I had such a wonderful time watching it with my wife that it, it was just a good viewing experience to, for the whole year that I wanted to make sure I accounted for that aspect of Criterion watching, too, that, it, you know, the films are always, you know, good and special and have their their some have a more personal impact on my life than others. But it's also just about how how fun it is to get these in the mail or, or go purchase them and then bring them home, pop them in and have just a great evening with people that you love. So there we go. Very well put. Aaron, what is your number three? My number three is, well, I'll, I'll just say that I, I tried to pick films that I really just appreciated during this pandemic and uh, and that hit the hit the right spot for me. So sometimes that uh, that means different things than than this one. But, uh, but I went with uh, Cameraman, which is the Buster Keaton 1928 film. Uh, it's and I think it's special in that, uh, you know, Buster Keaton's known for The General and Sherlock Jr. and Our Hospitality. And there's so many more uh, feature films. The cameraman is not the one that um, that really jumps to the top of the list for him. So I it's I think it's first uh, and maybe well, first of two works with MGM. So I wasn't expecting as much from this, but um, but of course the rights for those other films exist with other uh, uh, other labels, and so this is probably uh, the only Heaton that uh, Criterion can get as of right now. And I, I think it's great that they put the other film on there, Spite Marriage, which is is not as good as, as the cameraman. Um, but I, I was really just taken by this picture. It is one of the one of the few features I hadn't seen, and uh, it, it just it's, uh, as far as Keaton goes, and as you know, Keaton has a, a great sense of humor, great physical comedy. But this might be, in my opinion, his funniest film uh, in his his library. And uh, and I, I won't spoil it, but there's a, a whole scene with a monkey that uh, that yeah, I, I don't think uh, it's maybe a little more silly and less artistic, but it really, really works. And it also reflects, I think, his feelings on film and, and filmmaking. Uh, this, this really is about uh, the making of film. He is a cameraman. Um, also, just uh, this was an extension part of the cover. I think it's a beautiful cover and a lot of great features. And uh, and also, I, I happened to watch the other, uh, the Arrow video um, uh, releases for Keaton. So it was a big bus for Keaton year for me, which uh, which actually worked out quite well. So. If I might add on to that, too, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I do love the film, but it's it's far from my favorite Keaton. But one of the reasons I still think this release is absolutely essential is it tells a fantastic story about Keaton in some fantastic supplements. It does. I mean, yeah. this is Buster Keaton in a new phase of his career that in many ways will lead to, you know, his decline. And this is a kind of a step in that direction for various reasons. And it's like a teetering almost. And is he going to hit the landing or not? And, 
And this 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 film uh, or this release really goes into the MGM story and mm-hmm. what was going on beforehand and afterwards. That yeah, I, I think you know this is definitely one of the strongest releases of the year when it comes to really digging in and telling you the story surrounding the film. Besides presenting the film in a great transfer, it also had a commentary too. I, I think it was an older commentary, but those are are. are few and far between these days. So very appreciate that. Yeah, you're right. There were maybe three or four documentaries about uh, Keaton and MGM. So yeah, they really went all out for Keaton and I'm glad they did. Yeah, for sure. One of the advantages of dealing with these older films where everyone involved in them is past as you can kind of dig in more. Uh, I mean, you can have positive criticism too, but dig in more critically about like the ways in which it might've not been the best point in Keaton's career and that he still managed to create such a funny lasting film. In spite of that, is uh, pretty pretty stunning. Jordan, how about you? What's your number three? My number three is the reissue of the 1997 film by Abbas Kiarostami, Taste of Cherry, which I think is just such an astounding film about lostness and the need to be seen, you know, even or especially uh, in death. Um, there's the, the sequence that gives the title its film, but almost as importantly is this is this smaller exchange where the main character, Mr. Badi, says, I'll see you at six tomorrow, or rather, you'll see me at six. It's it's the summary of like the slumbering, searching man who's in his own mind is already dead, but he needs a witness to his existence, you know, even even in those final moments. And that that's kind of for me what I won't say more than that but it's kind of for me what that fascinating end sequence is is partially about also like this fantasy about being seen um and so this is essential kirstami you know the hd presentation hd presentation was much needed and i guess it's it's technically this reissue because you have this new special feature um with a a scholar hamid nafisi which is very good and then you have this new cover which breathtakingly captures the ephemerality of this man um maybe my favorite kiristami uh such a beautiful film has anyone watched the uh, supplement project the kind of sketch film for it i did years ago i didn't rewatch it yeah i did i watched it this year i hadn't seen it before i'm just curious about it how did it strike you well, I watched it after, and I, I had seen Taste of Cherry years ago, too, and then I watched Taste of Cherry again, and um, then I watched Project. The thing that I liked about it was it seemed so, uh, I don't know, the, the personal side of it where he's actually working on it with his son. That's what stands out hmm. to me right now, is that he's he's out there kind of testing the water for all of this stuff with with his son, and I, I, that's actually the part that stands out to me. As far as the, the film and all that, I was more looking at, oh, the, where's that line of dialogue or whatnot? Oh, sure. I, don't, I didn't actually pay much attention to it as a as its own thing, I guess, and, um, but but I, I did really enjoy watching it, yeah. Right on. Uh, and Jordan, thanks for the poetry. Honestly, man, I love this film. <laughs> I knew he'd bring it. <laughs> you're, like, making me kind of choke up here. <laughs> Jordan always brings the poetry. Down on that. Uh, David, what's your number three? Yeah, well, let me uh, kind of preface a couple things here. We've had uh, two of uh, the reissues, Lady Eve and uh, Taste of Cherry, just mentioned as, as uh, you know, favorites of the year. And and I, honestly, I have to say, if I was going to go by, like, my absolute favorite films, I'd probably go with Pearl de Fou, Symbiot- Psychotaxoplasm, 
and uh, maybe six moral tales, you know, all reissues uh, and, and uh, army of shadows coming back. You know, so we've got, we, you know, we've had an incredible year. I mean, if, if criterion had just reissued some of these titles <laughs> that were DVD only, that's a, that's pretty an outstanding lineup. Uh, so, but, but I kind of excluded them from my top three just cause I figured, well, I've either covered them before or they're familiar material. So I'm going to focus on, on newer stuff, but I, I, I just definitely want to give a shout out to those reissues and upgrades that criterion's put out there because uh you know they've they've just really released uh and and, and given the blu-ray only a set out there uh access to some really outstanding outstanding films um but uh, the other thing too is just kind of the subject of quality i mean i could certainly have an argument about you know what's the most important film or what's the you know the the you know canonical masterpiece and and the films that i'm going to be talking about tonight maybe don't fit that category as much but i'm going to be much going much more on the sort of the subjective experience, which I think, you know, several of us have already kind of alluded to as well. What are the films that kind of uh, impacted me or, or I, that I had the most, you know, kind of positive viewing experience, um, even though I might acknowledge other films that I've maybe watched more recently just to kind of get it in there and, and to say I at least have watched it. Um, there's been a little bit more of a methodical type of approach there just to sort of see what what's out there finally i want to give one quick shout out to adam spickerman he um he left a comment in uh the criterion now group that aaron runs uh it was in response to the photo that i posted of my complete criterion 2020 stacks you know and, and i thought adam's take on uh his favorite films as his favorite criterion releases of the year was really good so um you know check it out it's 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 uh there on the on the facebook group for those of uh those of you who are members of criterion now uh so shout out to adam for i think breaking it down i really can't quibble or argue with his picks especially since he mentioned two of the three that i'm going to be talking about tonight uh including claudine which is my number three uh finally getting around to that um i got this film as a gift from my daughter as a kind of a a birthday present she pre-ordered for me and i just remember getting it and getting up early one saturday morning just to pop it in and check it out because i was just really intrigued by the premise of the film uh this is a story about a kind of a an inner city uh family they're in new york city up in harlem uh it's a single mother she's got six children she's basically doing some housekeeping living off of welfare and and just really scrapping to get by uh, in the in the face of some pretty daunting circumstances, uh, this was a 1974 film when kind of black exploitation was kind of the uh, kind of the, the cutting edge for African American themed cinema, and this kind of told a story about ordinary people living their lives, and uh, I was just really intrigued. I mean, I I work in social services, I, I do a different type of work than the kind of you know welfare and and um, you know support for families and children. Uh, in that sense, that that's depicted on film, but I certainly can relate to the the, the context of 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 the of the lives that are being portrayed here. Uh, it's a really fantastic performances from Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones, both of whom are probably maybe better known for other roles that they've uh, taken on in their career. Uh, it was directed by John Barry. He was a guy. Uh, he was a a white guy, Polish Jewish, uh, I think, son of immigrants. Uh, he was blacklisted in the early 50s when uh, people came up and named names. His was one of the names that was named, and he uh, became kind of an exile 
uh, worked over in France for you know really a, a decade or two until it was finally safe for him to come back and not not necessarily a, 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 a titan of cinema or anything like that but he made a very quality film and it really just touched me because I felt the the grit the realism uh, the, the mix of, of, of joy and laughter. I mean, this is a romantic comedy slash drama. Um, and I just really just enjoyed that whole experience. Like I say, I got up early on a Saturday morning, watched it. It just made a pretty strong impact on me. And uh, it's a film that I'm very eager to get back into and, and give another look at. And I just like the idea of, of giving it a little bit of love. It's one of those titles that can maybe feel a little bit lost in the shuffle. It might feel a little bit minor to some folks. Uh, some, po- you know, I'm even some of the contemporary reviews kind of compared it to, uh, you know, TV movies, uh, you know, situation comedies. You think of like that old 70s series, Good Times, about another family living, you know, pretty, you know, close to the edge there in terms of the, raising their kids, their finances. It's a story about everyday, ordinary life and the and the struggles that people have to get through. Uh, but I just really appreciated both the the humor and the warmth of it. And then there were times when it got pretty gritty and pretty real, and and it even kind of surprised and, and shocked me a little bit about some of the you know, the bluntness, some of the aggressiveness of the situations that were being portrayed. So, uh, you know, it was a pretty impactful film for me, and one that I'm very happy to you know recommend to to viewers to check it out if you haven't seen it already. Excellent. That we can move on to our number twos, uh, starting with mine, I went with Claire Denis' Beau Treval. Um, I kind of run hot and cold with Claire Denis. Her films have a tendency to kind of uh, feel like they're building towards something, and that something might be a kind of subtle revelation, it might be a twist ending of sorts, it might be um, something that you don't even catch on the first viewing, or that doesn't really seem to jive with everything that's been come before. Um, I feel like sometimes uh, the kind of twistiness of that can feel like, well, then that's what it's all about. Um, but here it's really kind of just building the psychological portrait of these men. Uh, it's about a group of the French Foreign Legion uh, led by Denis Levant, who's always a welcome uh, leading man in any film. And the way she just kind of builds the tension within that group and then the kind of slight ways it gets unleashed and the ways which it, that is kind of inevitable. She, she sees it in this kind of culture of violence that a military group kind of encourages along the way. It's just a really stunning film and the package that Criterion put together before it couldn't be better. In my opinion, the 4k restoration on the disc is absolutely staggering. It's such a beautiful film. It has none of kind of, I, I, kind of thought we might get, have to get this sooner or later but there's been a lot of complaints recently about like especially uh european films getting restored with a sort of green or bluish filter which i don't feel is as uh much of a problem as some maybe overstate it to be um but it's certainly not uh something to worry about with this this is kind totally uh has all the kind of brownish and bold white hues of the african desert um it's just a really stunning film to look at and all the supplements each and every one of them is very substantial, more so than they might appear just at a glance. Um, the conversation between Clint Denis and uh, Barry Jenkins is really the standout to me. It was recorded, and Criterion makes this clear, kind of with the title card at the beginning, in the immediate aftermath of, uh, or not the aftermath, kind of as the protests were unfurling um, the days after uh, George Floyd was killed this summer. And 
they don't shy away from that context. And that context is very informative to discussing a film like Botreva, which is very much about kind of embedded violence within state mechanisms. And they totally dive into all that in the way that the film reflects the moment. And because it was recorded then, of course, it was recorded at a distance over Zoom. And they do this really interesting thing where Claire Denis set up a separate camera in her home to film her discussing. So the view we get of her is not solely just through kind of her laptop camera, but kind of this other camera that gives a wider view of her apartment that kind of lets you see her talking to her laptop. And it just kind of embraces the way most of us have communicated over the past year <laughs> in a way that I haven't seen reflected in a lot of these kind of Zoom conversations that we've been so inundated with over the uh, past several months. Um, so that's kind of a beautiful bit of texture to the, add to the disc. But beyond that, we also selected the scene commentary with Agnes Godard, who shot the film, um, who offers a lot of reflections, some kind of amusing, some uh, near harrowing about the making of the film and just kind of the circumstances around filming it. Some great interviews with Denis Levant, who's a total nut job and I wouldn't have any other way, uh, and <laughs> supporting actor Gregor Colon, and also a really lovely a video essay by a film scholar named Judith Main, who uh, reflects it's kind of situated theoretically around the dancing scenes in the film, which are very important to its development. But she gets into a lot of kind of the struggles of masculinity and just kind of uses it as a launching pad to get into various avenues of the film. So just all together, it's a really lovely package for a film I hadn't seen before and had always wanted to see. And this provides just kind of a fully rounded look at all the aspects of it and really drew out a lot in the film for me and one I'm very happy to revisit the, as the years go on. And the only last thing I'll add is that um, this also gives me an excuse to mention that Criterion also released Le Petit Soldat, um, the film to which mm -hmm. Beau Travel mm -hmm. is kind of a loose sequel. There's a character in it who uh, is played by the same actor who may or may not be the same guy. The film doesn't kind of double down on it, but it the film is an interesting reflection on Le Petit Soldat and a lot of the supplements kind of key into that and kind of expand on that. Um, and Le Petit Soldat, the Criterion release, is pretty thin as far as that goes. There's not a lot to the supplements on it, in spite of actually a really great essay that comes with it. But the transfer is really lovely. And but so I would really recommend picking up both films as they are both uh, well worth their time in their own right and make a beautifully complimentary pair. So we will move on to Trevor's number two. All right. My number two, uh, just to preface it a little bit, was was almost Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother. But since I did choose to go with films that I discovered more recently, I opted for something different. But in the same vein, uh, still a film that kind of keeps opening my eyes to the experience of other people who are not me. Um, you know, I think about all about my mother. I saw that, uh, you know, back when it came out and was just struck by how much I cared about these people, you know, in this, in this kind of a soap opera-esque film but how real they felt and their struggles and uh, particularly the trans community. You know, I didn't know anybody that I knew was transsexual when I was growing up. And that film uh, helped me realize that a lot of the stuff that you hear was just a bunch of hooey. Um, but I went for um, another film that kind of opened my eyes again and continued to help me see things. And, and that was uh, Celine Sciamma's uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I did see this when it came out in, in theaters, uh, and, but was delighted when Criterion uh, announced that they were releasing it because, man, I, I loved it. I loved the that, that she was able to explore uh, this issue of, you know, she says the female gaze, the director, 
but this just this issue of two women who fall in love uh, passionately, uh, you know, a few centuries ago and in quiet and that the film is able to, to, to go into that that area, explore that while still presenting such a wonderful story and such a passionate, um, you know, touching romance that's kind of doomed, um, but also is there to really, you know, provide support and and um, really help these two women uh, out all the same. I just loved it. I, I love the the passion in it. I like that the Criterion um, uh, disc on the back, you know, the blurbs begins passion brews quietly. And that's really kind of how this film is. It's something, it's a story that most people would, would not acknowledge ever happened, um, potentially even the women involved later on in life. But it did, and I love that they know it, and I love the film's final scene. I watch it again and again and again. It's one of the reasons I love having the disc. I just, I, I love that power uh, of that final scene and the the, the way that it just it takes takes your breath away. And so this this was my number two, and I'm I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I may have been thinking Almodovar, but this is another film that I think will will continue to have a lasting impact on me through the years to come. Yeah, it's a stunning film, and definitely one I also considered for cover of the year. Uh, Aaron, your number two is one that was very high in contention for my list as well. I'm perhaps the most literally eye-popping release of the year. <laughs> it, it is. And and just to really quickly piggyback on uh, Portrait of a Lady, Young Lady on Fire, that, that was in contention for mine as well. And probably of the, the recent films that Criterion releases, as far as uh, recent, re- uh, recent releases uh, or, or have come out uh, in recent years, uh, that that's top of the um, the list for me. I, I love the the way they use music and the way they don't use music. And they don't use it very much. And when they do, it's very impactful. But yeah, so my uh, my my number two is very different from that. Um, uh, it's very different from most everything. It's Three Fantastic Journeys by uh, Carol Zeman. And so this was a delight. And a little bit of a personal uh, touch is when, I, when we watched it, it was pre-COVID. I, I believe this came out earlier in the year. And I, I watched it. We were one of our uh, plans that was canceled. I know everybody had their plans canceled this year, but we were going to go to Prague, and we were. I'd already bought tickets to the uh, the Zeman Museum, and I was really looking forward to that. So, um, so I did not get to go to, to that, and I deliberately did not watch the Zeman Museum uh, features, but I, I did get to watch the films, and they were uh, all that special. So I'll still stay, save the um, the museum pieces for when I actually visit the uh, visit Prague someday. But yeah, these are just um, they're they're artistic, they're escapist, and uh, they're just really one of a kind, or three of a kind in, in this case. Uh, just one of the great many great box sets that Criterion came out with this year, and it's not just the box set; it's not just the films. They they're on their own. They're 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 gorgeous and beautiful. But yeah, the, the packaging, the the cutouts, uh, the um, the supplements. I I really loved the the supplement about the special effects. Because it's it's strange watching these films, you know, from seventy years ago, sixty seventy years ago, and um, and seeing these these visual effects that actually seem pretty sophisticated, and the, the way they uh, they the uh, I think it was Phil Tippett and some other people talk about how they how they did these things. It really actually seems simple, but I, I know it's not. Um, yeah, really lovely films. I think probably of the three, Invention for Destruction, just the, the continual line art on that. It just kind of uh, took me away. I'd already seen uh, Fabulous uh, Baron Munchausen. 
And so, yeah, just uh, Carol Zeman is just a treasure. And uh, this was a great release from Criterion in a lot of respects. I think it's fair to say that Trevor and I might have put it on our list because we already did a whole episode on it uh, for our Inside the Box. But you're right; it's it's an outstanding mm-hmm. uh, release, so, such a so much fun. And and I'll just th- you know throw in comments that we've already expanded on in our other show. Uh, the, the short features, you know, that the 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 Zeman, the early Zeman films are every bit as enthralling and fascinating as the as the main event. So uh, yeah, excellent. They are. Yeah, one is even seasonally appropriate a Christmas dream. Uh, Jordan, you're also situating us in Eastern Europe. What do you got? So for my number two, I have the 1969 Czechoslovak film Cremator by Yuri Hertz. And in a year where, you know, self-destructive collaborators controlled the (laughs) national stage by (laughs) propping up a tyrannical man who branded himself as the gatekeeper to their personal future prosperity. This film about a a different time, but a similar kind of mentality serves as a brilliant cautionary tale. If we're not too late for cautionary tales and, you know, we see the seduction of authority, uh, access, privilege, um, proximity to power, how all that cultivates this callousness and smugness and hedonism And we have this uh, main character who, um, you know, totally falls into that fold, you know, and um, in an attempt to pacify and 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 preserve his own status, you know, does monstrous things. Um, The the filmmaking style is also incredible. So it's not just thematically that it's interesting, like just as a film bereft of that comparison to contemporary times. Uh, Hertz uses uh, mosaic and montage and close-up in in this really, really fascinating and energizing way that feels original even today. Like he'll he'll create the surreal out of any ordinary tableau. Now he also pursues surreality, I think, in a more specific, overt sense. But he'll even take like you know shots of a cat drinking milk and and turn it into something that feels you know, out of step with reality. So it casts a a, a great spell on you when you're watching this film. I'm generally a fan of Czechoslovak cinema. This is no exception. This film had a pretty vibrant life on both Filmstruck and the channel before this physical release, but here it is, and uh, I could not be more excited. Yeah, I was glad glad you picked it, uh, and I appreciated what you said here, especially because I've always enjoyed the Czech New Wave, but it really wasn't until the past couple of years in which it made kind of that urgent emotional sense to me for exactly the reasons you spelled out, that there's any number of modern parallels and that uh, Mm -hmm. films of that era have really a newfound resonance with me. Uh, One of the small binges I went on this year was uh, through a bunch of Czech New Wave films I hadn't seen before, and they just I was just completely in that zone and completely... It, they spoke to me in a new way, let's just say. And awesome. I'd say totally it couldn't be any different than Zeman. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> although, although there's a little bit of a dark comedy in, in The Cremator, which I, I kind of appreciate. Uh, uh, extremely dark, but uh, yeah. Wonderful and film. Hope, that was all close to my list as well. I hope we Sorry, see more. Of this. That's okay. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, I just wanted to drop in, like, I hope we see more of this filmmaker's work in the collection. On one of the special features, they, they show a clip that he did a not a clip, I think it was a freeze frame, a still, that he did a version of Beauty and the Beast, which I would love to see. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there are a lot of kind of, a lot of these guys 
once um, Czechoslovakia started really cramping or clamping down on artistic expression, went on to do like fairy tale movies. I've watched some clips of them and they're really beautiful and really well realized. So yeah, it'd be cool to maybe we can get a little box set of those going. Yeah. Uh, David, what is your number two? All right. My number two is maybe building on this theme that Jordan's kind of established of kind of, uh, you know, people responding to, uh, incipient fascism totalitarianism and all of that uh, it's christ stopped at ebola this is a film directed by francesco rossi it's from 1979 and apparently this is a kind of a uh new to most everybody uh restoration of the original you know kind of epic length of the film it's actually i think four episodes that might have even i think maybe it was a made for tv film uh so it's almost like you know three and a half plus hours uh, a very long uh, kind of sprawling story about a uh, and it's based on, on real life. Uh, Carlo Levi, he's an intellectual, a painter, a kind of a philosopher, or a writer. Uh, and, and in the 1930s Italy, uh, he gets himself into some kind of trouble because his political activism has uh, placed him on the wrong side of uh, Mussolini and, and his forces. And so he, rather than, uh, you know, imprisoning him or, or maybe even harsher sentences, uh, he's exiled down to what's, I guess, known as sort of the instep of Italy. If you think of Italy as the boot, you know, geographically and all that, it's kind of a, a very rustic, primitive province at the very south of, uh, of that nation. And, um, you know, he's taken away from his, uh, you know, his kind of home base in Turin up in the north and sent to live with the peasants. He's, uh, you know, even though he's had training as a doctor, he's not really a doctor, but because he at least has some education and there's a, a malaria plague that's uh, hitting the area, uh, he's called upon to uh, provide some support and services to these people that he really feels no kinship with. I mean, even though they're all Italians, I guess you could say there's that much, but uh, he's an intellectual, he's an urbanite, he's, uh, he's from a different part of Italy, and Italy doesn't have necessarily the strongest history of national you know bonding and unity I mean, they were city states and they were very separate regions and and often held each other in contempt uh, but he's kind of forced to connect with these citizens who are you know very unlike him they're they're uh, their their faith is primitive. It's superstitious. They believe in curses and witchcraft, the evil eye, all that kind of stuff. And so it's just a very fascinating um, kind of a cross cultural connection. And to me, I, I think what I really enjoyed about it, sort of like what had Trevor had said, it was a it was a film that my wife and I could sit down and enjoy over the course of a couple nights. Uh, it it tells its its tale kind of in a leisurely, expansive way. Uh, apparently there was an edited version that was put into theatrical distribution. Uh, they didn't include that cut here, and I'm, I'm fine without it. Uh, but I just really, I really found myself getting absorbed into the story. Uh, the, the lead actor, Jean-Maria Volante, he was in Investigation of a Citizen uh, Above Suspicion, which is one of those you know, emotionally impactful films that I watched a few years ago, uh, primarily for my podcast, but it's really stuck with me. I think there's just something about this era of, of 60s, uh, 70s Italian cinema that really, 
I don't know. It just it just makes a pretty powerful impression. I mean, Jordan, you and I can talk about Dillinger is dead all over again, and, and you know <laughs> yes. that whole thing, uh, which really that was a trigger that started my whole podcast for uh, Criterion Reflections. But this one here is a lot more grounded and, and down to earth reality. And I just I just felt like yeah, this was a year to really think about the the common people of the world. I mean, you know, we're in this pandemic. The economy's you know not completely in shambles, but certainly there it's 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 disastrous for a lot of people. And uh, even though my life has not been personally affected to that degree, um, you know, COVID's hitting home. I, I I know I've got acquaintances who have died now, or people who've really struggled. And uh, I'm just these films that sort of turn my attention to the realities of life. I mean, I like my escapism. I like my fantasy. I like my surrealism and all that kind of, you know, kind of, you know, brain rattling stuff. But, uh, this film and, and the, the, what I'm going to talk about is my number one really just got me kind of focused on, on, you know, the gritty realities of, of, of this world and, and, and also seeing things from outside of our kind of American Western perspective to just really just try to get down to a sort of a deeper base of, what bonds us as, as humanity, even if our beliefs and our politics don't line up, how can we forge that connection and, and, um, and really try to pursue, um, understanding and, and, and relationship and compassion, uh, despite all of the things that might divide us against each other. So, uh, Christ stopped at Ebola. I mean, even the title itself is like, you know, there are just some parts of the world that even God doesn't really want to <laughs> tangle with. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a very evocative uh, title and it's a movie that, you know, again, it's, it's a long one. It's, it's a bit of an investment in time, but it's one I definitely want to get back into. There's, there's a lot of textures. There's a lot of depth in this story. And uh, again, the, the fact that it's based on real life, events uh, maybe they're novelized a little bit maybe there's a little bit of a uh, you know compression that goes on to to make it cinematic but i i was just really moved by this and really enjoyed it and it's just another film i like to kind of draw people's attention to i know aaron you had talked about it when we were on criterion now you had just watched it recently and had some pretty good things to say about it as well so i just want to definitely you know reconnect with that little conversation we had it was a great kind of i took a recommendation to check it out from your words there and uh, definitely glad I did. Yeah. It was a really breathtaking movie and, and kind of an epic. And I, I think Rosie just does not get enough credit as a director. I think I called out a few of his works, but there's, there's many more. And I hopefully, um, hopefully Criterion will bring more, more to the collection. Yep. But yeah, good, great choice. Yeah. It's one I'm still looking forward to checking out. Um, getting into our number ones. Uh, my number one, very modest film, but a very lovely one that, uh, I had seen many years ago and always liked, and then watching it again just reminded me of how exceptionally good it is. And I knew instantly it'd be my number one pick of the year after we had already agreed that the Varda set would not uh, be considered for this round. Um, but it is uh, Claudia Wilde's Girlfriends from 1978, a film that had come out on a Warner Archive DVD release. And because Criterion took so long to reach an agreement with Warner Brothers, I wondered if that would kind of be the end of the road for it but i'm glad that now they're kind of in the swing of things and getting to some of these films that maybe aren't like the top shelf of warner classics but deserve to be in many ways this is a simple 88 minute film about a couple of friends who kind of start drifting apart after one of them gets married and it's 
swift and it's brief, but it has kind of this whole world contained within it. Uh, each scene seems to suggest four other scenes that we're watching kind of in the background or could be bubbling under the surface to happen a little bit before the scene we're watching or the one after it. There's just so much life embedded within it and so much context and the dialogue is so sharp. It's very funny and uh, very sad in a lot of ways, but very touching and not... Um, not too depressing about a woman who's really at a crossroads that could be um, kind of uh, either the end of things for her or a new beginning. And the film suggests they could be either and that what matters most is just finding herself within that moment. And Criterion's handling of the film is really great. The restoration, it's, you know, 16 millimeter 70s film is only going to look so good, I suppose. But uh, within that context, it looks really fantastic. And, there's a bunch of new interviews with Claudia Weil and the cast of the film and the screenwriter who provided a lot of great context, which I really appreciated. And then a couple of very fine short films um, that Weil did before this, uh, which I always love when Criterion includes those short films to provide kind of not only wider context of their career, but really of the moment in which they were working. And her films, are, including Girlfriends, really kind of capture the texture of uh, New York and just kind of wider culture at the time. Um, you know, a lot's been written about it being an exceptionally feminist film, but it's not, you know, an insistent one. It's just about um, women who are trying to find themselves within the context and don't and know that they have a space to claim, but don't quite know how to claim it. And it's one of those subjects that is eternally relevant and um, is, like I said, just so touchingly explored here. So I was really pleased that Criterion finally put it out and did such a good job doing it. And plus, it comes with a full booklet, not any leaflet pamphlet. Uh, this one has staples, baby, and it's got two essays. <laughs> and uh, I always appreciate when that happens. You know, I watched this film when it was on the channel, and I do have the disc. I just haven't gone back to it because I figured, well, I've, I've seen it. But uh, that's good to hear that the the rest of the package is pretty well rounded. So. Uh, very encouraging. It kind of reminds me, a couple of years ago, I picked um, Smithereens as one. I think that was my Yeah, that's too. a great film. Sort of from that same sort of slice of society. Uh, Smithereens is a few years later. But, uh, yeah, it was a cool pick. And I'm I'm, I'm glad that it uh, lived up to your expectations as a release. And uh, definitely enjoyed it myself when I watched it, like I say, in streaming. Uh, Trevor, you have a much more darker view of uh, womanhood than I do. Uh, what is your number one? It is a film that is incredibly seductive with its beauty and its luxury. And then you get to know it and it has an, a dark, dark heart, <laughs> much like the subject of the film. Um, I chose John M. Stahl's Leave Her to Heaven. This is not a stacked release. In fact, there's a great interview with Imogen Sarah Smith on it. But that's kind of it, um, you know, other than the, a really nice uh, looking transfer of this really beautifully, uh, beautiful technical or noir film. But I still picked it for my number one because, man, does it haunt, you know, like I say, it's it's deuces. It's it's gorgeous in so many ways. And then it just it, it it's really it, it really surprised me. I'd never seen it before. Um, how how dark it gets. And how dark uh, Gene Tierney's beautiful, um, you know, Ellen uh, gets. Uh, it's a film that, to me, really explores this mistaking love for, or rather, mistaking obsession for love. Um, you know, Ellen 
uh, Jean Tierney's character has uh, love for her, you know, her, the, the man that she falls in love with and and uh, marries. Uh, but it's it's a love that that is a singular fixation on the object of her affections, and it demands the same in return. Um, it demands so much that it's it's like a black hole, in fact. And and her, you know, Cornell Wilde's Richard uh, cannot fill that hole. Um, he he can't. It doesn't even comprehend what she wants from him, what she expects from him. And when it becomes clear, it's kind of an all in. And the extent that she will go to in order to ensure that it is everything, uh, you know, it's it's just it's just terrifying. But part of what's so terrifying is it's also so dang beautiful, and uh, just like Ellen is, you know, I mean, it's it's a film that just really kind of had me going around in circles, haunts me to this day. <laughs> you know, it's been it's been several months since I first saw it, and I. I I enjoy revisiting pieces of it uh, for this episode. I enjoyed revisiting pieces for this episode uh, just to see that beauty. And again, it pulled pulled me right in. I watched much more than I thought that I would. But yeah, you're right. It's a lot darker. Um, Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> but it is not as dark as where we're about to go. No. So <laughs> uh, well, Trevor did the segue for me, uh, so I won't try to top it. But uh, Aaron and Jordan, uh, you guys certainly picked among the darker of Criterion releases this year, but a uh, very worthy one. Uh, Aaron, I guess I'll let you introduce it. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Trevor, I don't know. So, uh, sometimes swimming with Gene Tierney is pretty terrifying. So, um, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mentioned previously that I, I chose films that uh, I, I thought stood out for the pandemic. Um, I, I'm, I'm never going to compare uh, wartime Belarusian uh, uh, horrors with the pandemic. Uh, but for, for me and my wife, even, uh, this was really a quite an experience um, right in the, the midst of it. Um, so my, my choice is come and see. And uh, Jordan will follow with some poetry, so I'll just kind of tee it up there. <laughs> but I, I'll just say that it's it's yeah, it, it is horrific. It is uh, it, it's exhilarating. It's enthralling. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's a lot. Of, you can use a lot of adjectives, but it's um, it's just in a way how horrific. It's also kind of beautiful, and I, I'm sure J- Jordan will kind of encapsulate that beauty as well. It, it, beauty within the horror. Um, it's also uh, it was my cover of the year as well, uh, and it's just a great release. Uh, it, it, they really combine uh, not only Elam Klimov's experiences, but the history of Belarusian um, uh, the, the, that era, that I guess theater of the war, which I didn't know much about, uh, even though I had already seen this before, just not in this transfer. And by the way, it was night and day. Uh, this this movie actually jumped up to uh, the top of my uh, my favorite films list, literally the the very top. It's uh, it's my favorite film of all time at this moment. So and, and I, I don't make those changes quite frequently. So very moving to me. Um, so Jordan, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's just it's such a breathtaking, sprawling, angry, disturbing film, um, but that captures such realism. I mean. And it and in such a sort of felt artistic way, you know, this is not the this is not the war of, you know, Hollywood adventuring. This is the war of like that singular victim who is like propelled and swallowed through landscape that that mm. is itself a victim of of this war torn effort. And, um, you know, I just found it so emotionally brutal, but also, you know, Despite that realism, it does have a kind of tint of fairy tale to it, especially in those like sequences between the, the boy and the girl. 
Mm-hmm. I think that sort of sets the stage for this this fairy tale like quality. Um, nothing nothing you want to read before bedtime, but something slightly heightened. Um, and you know, the sense of time also occurs to me as a strength of this film. Like it really convincing passage of time um, changes in the narrative climate as well. And I wonder in watching some of the special features, I learned that they filmed this in sequence, which is, as we all know, not the normal way of filmmaking. Usually you structure a shooting schedule around, you know, (laughs) having actors work as few days as possible um, when you can tie down a location, um, again, to keep that location and pay for that location for as few days as possible. Um, and, and maintain continuity through making sure that everything's documented and set up the same way when you have to go back in time. And so I guess for multiple reasons, but one that was described as, you know, they, they had um, a non-professional actor playing the lead and they felt that this boy would be able to like convincingly portray the journey of this young man if he himself had to live through the passage of time in the right order. And mm. I just made a new short film where we shot in sequence. It's the first time I've ever been able to do that. And it is very helpful, actually. You know, it, it, you don't have to try to remind yourself, where, where, where did I emotionally pivot? Like, where am I coming from now? Oh, yeah, that, that thing that I just experienced, that hasn't happened yet. So let me, like, retract that from my emotional palette so that I don't, like, you know, like tip off to what's going to happen next for the viewer, but will happen, you know, in sequence. It already has occurred to me as the performer. Um, So I think that has something to do with what is a really successful sense of the passage of time. Um, Visually, it's stunning, right, Iron? I mean, this thing is just um, incredible to to see. And some of it is that they used, I mean, talk about practical effects. They were using live ammunition and live bombs in order to... (laughs) communicate what it's like to, you know, be in front of a landscape that's being obliterated. Um, I mean, I think this film has received a lot of praise and, and rightfully so. I, I, I couldn't think of a better first choice. And and Jordan, uh, great uh, call out about the filming and sequence. I, I really think with the, the performance, and, and this is one of those rare films where you really see see the film through one character, even if it's not through, you know, it's, you literally see him in every frame and you live the film through his expressions. Um, I honestly don't think that they could have, uh, if that performance could have worked if they had shot it out of order. And, and actually after reading up on the film, I, I kind of wondered if it, this was traumatic for the actor. Uh, the, you know, I think he was probably 15 at the time and uh, fortunately he came out okay, but it, yeah, it, it was one of those, most gripping performances I've seen. And yeah, I I just don't see how you could have done it out of order. Um, It it was also influenced the film 1917, which was um, last year. And I'm not going to compare those two. I I think 1917 was fine. Come and see is on a different level, but of course, 1917 explored that uh, single take. And so I I think that passage of time that you you, uh, called out, you know, I think that does work. Um, even if they're not single takes, there were some very long, um, impressive tracking shots with uh, with a lot going on. You know, you mentioned kind of the the live effects, uh, the from the war, even bombs. Uh, those those happened in long. Uh, you, you can't you can't retake bombs. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just technically and emotionally and uh, narratively, just a, a fascinating film. So I'm glad that we're on the same page there, Jordan. Yes, sir. Yeah. I- 
I would just add to it for anyone who might be uh, hesitant to watch it I, without underselling how harrowing it is, is, is certainly that, but it is incredibly transfixing. And once you start watching, it's very hard to stop. Um, so if anyone's out there is hearing about it and has heard, you know, oh, maybe it's hard to get through for two and a half hours. Um, if, if you can hang with uh, what it depicts, the way it depicts it is very uh, easy to watch in a way. I guess the way it presents it is just completely captivates you. Uh, so, David, your number one is my number three, but I will let you take the reins on this because it is your number one and you feel apparently much more strongly. Than I <laughs> well, it's it's an astonishing package of films. This is World Cinema Project number three, uh, six film set. Uh, you know, Martin Scorsese does a little intro on each of the f- six films and time will not allow me to break down each and every one. I mean, I guess I can rattle off the titles. We've got Lucia from Cuba. Uh, we've got After the Curfew from Indonesia, Pichot from Brazil, and uh, Dos Montes from Mexico, uh, Soleo from uh, Mauritania, and Downpour from Iran. So, you know, six countries that uh, don't often get brought up for frequent rotations especially some of the age of some of these films going back you know quite a few decades you know let's face it world cinema project is that's this is their third volume they've been doing this for several years the first volume goes back to the old dual format days this is the first of these three sets that i sat down and watched just kind of you know, I, I won't even call it binging because I, I think I kind of you know took my time, but but it was you know like probably you know eight or nine nights in a row of, of watching at least one of these films, and uh, really found myself quite captivated, kind of like what I had said earlier about finding cinema that takes me outside of the normal um, range of, of, of kind of typical viewings, whether that's from the Hollywood kind of commercial cinema or what one of the opening essays in the booklet calls the second cinema, which is the art house, uh, a tourist type of uh, you know art cinema. Uh, third cinema is kind of the category that comes up here in, in this essay, talking about films from countries that uh, maybe will never have the kind of commercial clout that Hollywood does does and it may take a while for a specific director's body of work to kind of capture the notice you think of somebody like kiristami from iran or or uh you know directors from uh, you know semben from africa others uh that have actually been part of these sets but this kind of just gets into some some you know films that might be seen as more like one-offs or you know maybe introductions to great uh directors and, and other artists artistic creators uh who's who's work whose work is very much worth seeking out it's just going to be harder to find but again you know um the the heaviness of themes i think pichot is kind of as on its in its own way every bit as dark and compelling as come and see not on the maybe the same epic war time historical scale but the the harrowing experiences of of um you know youth living in the slums of of uh rio de janeiro in brazil uh that's a pretty grim undertaking and there and the real life backstory of how that film was made and what happened to the young actor at the heart of that film i mean that's that's pretty gripping stuff um so you know to me it was really just a matter of coming to grips with these films that um you almost would be buried and, and lost to history if it weren't for the very heroic work of the film foundation 
and maybe for people who've been digging these sets a little bit more, uh, you know, timely than I have. I mean, I've, I've watched several films from the first two volumes, but it's just been more kind of incidental here and there. Maybe it's up for a podcast. Maybe I'm just kind of filling in a blank and, and, and checking one off the list. But I really just dug into this set. Um, and this was right, like right after I'd finished up kind of season three of my podcasting. So it was like, okay, I think I better start watching some of these 2020 criterions just to kind of get ready for this show that we're doing tonight. But I, I watched Lucia and I was just so moved by that. It's a very impressive kind of a tour de force film, uh, three different eras in Cuban history, each starring a different female actor with the name Lucia. And, uh, I was just like, wow, that's really stunning, really impressive. And, and this was directed by a 26 year old guy, Umberto Solas. Uh, so, you know, as a set, you know, you're not going to get overwhelmed with supplements. Typically each supplement is just kind of a, an interview, um, an essay with a, a critical expert on the particular film in question. There may be, you know, a few other little bits thrown in there, but it's really just kind of background to put the film in context. So you're not going to get, you know, the well-rounded, you know, short films and, and other stuff that you might be expecting from other, other criterion editions. But, uh, I was just really moved and just, it just makes me feel like I got to sit down and really get into those two previous volumes. And uh, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of opening up a new dimension for me. Uh, I, I like the art house stuff. I like auteur theory and, and I like, uh, exploring the canonical works of the Godards and the Ozus and, and, and all of that. But the, these these other films that put me in touch with a society you know that's removed from my own whether that's geographically time and space and culture uh, but to help me understand life that's lived outside of the american western context and um recognizing these, these are films that are not made for the same motives that uh, typically drive what we're seeing produced nowadays or even some of the you know more commercially accessible films from from years gone by uh so yeah these are films that deal with wartime and post-colonialism and and a, and a nation that's struggling to find its own identity uh, against all kinds of resistance, both external and internal. Um, so, you know, I won't give a detailed breakdown of any of the other films other than to say, boy, the, these are each very strong, very well chosen. The, uh, the ability to capture these films literally before some of the elements were irre irretrievably lost and damaged and, uh, perhaps unviewable. Um, it's it's nothing short of heroic. So um, I, I guess I really just want to I want to give these films, uh, you know, my highest endorsement. Uh, the, these sets, these editions, it's just a, a really great direction that Criterion's moving in. I know some of the other film foundation restorations, uh, Memories of Other Development, Manila in the Claws of Light. Uh, they've gotten their own standalone release, and Tuki Buki, you know, which was from the first volume, is coming up as its own standalone uh, up in March. So. Uh, these are not just curiosities uh, or or kind of let's just save it while we can. These are really outstanding works of film art, and it makes you kind of regret that I'm sure a lot of the other works from the same time um, haven't been blessed with the the preservation and restoration that uh, that these do do receive here in these boxes. So, yeah, this this was uh, an outstanding experience for me, and and definitely what I have to say is my most compelling viewing experience of the new 2020 criterions that I've had this year. Yeah. Uh, what you 
much you said a lot of what i would have gotten to already um and especially around like the idea of the third cinema and just this way of expressing oneself that doesn't exist in the forms were more uh frankly just more widely exposed to just the fact that a lot of these films survive basically on luck and occasionally some ingenuity on the part of people who have the elements you know sneaking them around to various archives or holding on to their own prints you know one of the cases uh, I think it was after the curfew. It only exists on this like English subtitled print. That's um, downpour actually. Downpour, but yes. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, an Iranian film that was basically seized and, and, you know, demolished by the, you know, the post-revolutionary government. Um, it's not an especially, you know, insubordinate type of film. It just doesn't fit the dogma. And so it cannot exist anymore except for that one with the burned in English subtitles. Yeah, which is unfortunate because you can miss some lines of dialogue, and I loved the film, so I wish we could get those gaps filled in. But um, <laughs> yeah. alas, uh, but nevertheless, to see all these films in such stunning restorations—I mean, even leaving aside what we know of the elements being left behind—the restoration work is really incredible, and they do such a good job in this box set of highlighting the fact that these films just survive because they happen to make it. You know, there's tons of other films from those countries that have just been suppressed for political reasons for economic reasons you know film preservation is an expensive habit and we're lucky that so many american films are so well preserved and such is also the case in much of europe um and in japan but there's plenty of other countries where it just doesn't happen earlier this year i did a podcast on battleship pretension on argentinian cinema and we had to focus mostly on you know 21st century and maybe a little bit earlier cinema because very little of it exists from before then there just isn't kind of the uh, because that country has experienced so much upheaval over time, there isn't the consistency of government, the consistency of culture to kind of continually put the effort into preserving those films. Um, so we're so lucky to get what the World Cinema box sets put out. And I always treasure each release, Criterion manages to release. And it really seems like to me the cornerstone alongside maybe the essential art house of what I associate with Criterion, which is rescuing these films from uh, possible extinction and preserving them in such a lovely form and presenting, giving them the context of the Criterion Collection and their own spine number and some decent supplements to expound on them, to present them to people in a context that they might be receiving them. I mean, I know for me, I spoke with us online and on Twitter and Letterboxd that a film like Pichote, I, I would never seek that out on my own. Is not the kind of genre I glom onto or can really kind of stomach for most of it, but I'm so glad that Criterion made me watch it. It's such a such a great film and you are right to compare it to come and see you know it doesn't have the kind of the technical bravado but for its uh structure and emotional involvement it's definitely up there it's a really stunning film and each of these films i'll confess i have not yet seen dos monjes which is odd that it's a 74 minute film i've seen like the three hour one but not the 74 minute one <laughs> but i'll get to it soon uh, but every other one of them i i really loved and i'm so glad for this box set well, we have a little extra time, so uh, we did want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Criterion Channel, so that's a good time to tack that on here. I know I kind of ragged on streaming a bit earlier, but Criterion Channel has definitely uh, helped my quarantine go more smoothly. And I think this year, Criterion's really come in their own in terms of what they wanted to do with the channel. Um, I, of course, we all loved what they did with Filmstruck, and uh, to an extent, we wondered if the Criterion Channel might be you know, a lighter version of that, or a compromised version of that, or you know, that they wouldn't have the same access, but they've developed it very much into its own thing. It very much reflects Criterion's identity while expounding on and giving them more opportunities to do kind of stranger and more daring and kind of more experimental stuff with 
the way they tend to create. I was looking at um, kind of the monthly emails we get every month to spotlight the next month's additions to the channel. I, I was just blown away by everything we had from this past year. I mean, you think of like the 70s sci-fi section that kind of kicked off the year, which was so galvanizing, I think, for a lot of us. And the newer works that have streaming premieres like Long Day's Journey and Night or LaFleur or Synonyms. Uh, they had that section spotting Saul Bass or Francis Marion, a female screenwriter who I think for most even hardcore cinephiles is not a household name by any stretch, um, but she contributed to all these wonderful films. And, you know, from more ex- kind of fun sections like Western Noir or the kind of star spotlights like Mae West or Gary Cooper to this month's Afrofuturism section, you know, there's or the free section, the films by black directors they had over the summer, you know, there's a really huge breadth of cinema that's offered on the channel each month and i think most of us have that experience of looking at the soon to expire section being like oh if only there was more time you know <laughs> as much as there's an yeah. abundance of physical releases the streaming platform offers so much more than anyone could ever hope to get to and so much of it is really worthy of that time if we had it um but we each wanted to kind of go through and spotlight some things that stood out to us um i know for me my Quarantine watching kind of kicked off with Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper on the Criterion channel has remained one of the best films I've seen over the past few months. Um, and so I wanted to mention that. But the really the section and David, you can latch onto this after I introduce it because you felt the same. Um, the one that really stood out to me was kind of the Tell Me Women's Filmmakers, Women's Stories mm-hmm. section, which is exactly what I would love out of every streaming channel to re- provide this little section of films that are, you know, I, I suppose you could put them into a box set, but otherwise there's not a really great kind of way to present them. But streaming offers this perfect avenue for films that range from what, 15 minutes to two hours. You know, they're all over the place uh, in terms of era, in terms of subject, in terms of style. They couldn't be more different, but just kind of grouping them under this notion of women who made films, maybe not under with great funding or with uh, great support systems, but had kind of an urgency. They're mostly tending towards the documentary side, but have a sort of style to them, a distinct personality that makes them unique. And it's another one that I haven't gotten through all of them, but luckily Criterion's kept it around. I've kind of revisited it over a couple of months to see something new whenever i have a free half hour hour you know they're really easy to slide in and are just they open up whole worlds i mean it's a really lovely section that uh kind of underlines what i value so much about the channel yeah yeah no this is a real highlight for me i mean uh, from a different couple different angles um i kind of tuned into it because there were several films from 1971 my criterion reflections podcast was focusing on films from that particular year and those were kind of the earliest films in this collection so it was kind of a perfect venue for me to say okay let's kind of cover a few of these uh short films or like you know between 40 and and 25 30 minutes and uh, and for that i actually did a little bit of reaching out and, and found a couple of young women uh, living down in Florida, they uh, began right around COVID time. Actually, they started a podcast called Purple Noon. Uh, Stephanie Conti and Vanna Lanasse, and I've uh, kind of made friendships with them. And and I, I got these young women to kind of watch these early '70s films, you know, from some some years before they were born, and say, "Tell me what you thought," because I was a kid growing up in this context, and I'm hearing 
from kind of a maybe a generation or even two <laughs> behind me and getting these young women's perspectives. I really enjoyed that conversation and, and the, the friendship that's developed from that. But you're right. Th- these films as well, I mean, they're certainly much more relatable to the context and the culture that I, I've lived in all, all my life. But they do give women a chance to just tell their story on their terms without having to put it in the terms of, uh, you know, popular entertainment, romantic comedies, something that's more commercially accessible. These really very much are films of people just sitting down and telling their story, sharing their experience. And a lot of these films were probably shown in, you know, school cafeterias or in meeting rooms, uh, not in commercial theaters, but uh, events meant to raise awareness and and to say to women, you know what, you've got a mind, you've got a you've got a will, you can think and t- speak for yourself, and and we can change some things. And so there's a social activist aspect here, um, and just you know again some some creative angles. Uh, you know, even though they're documentaries, it doesn't mean there's a lack of imagination or innovation. Uh, even though these are <laughs> a lot of them are very much shoestring budgets, you know, uh, and labors of love. So just one example of i think the criterion uh organization if you will viewing their streaming channel is not just a little appendix it's not just sort of keeping their you know foot in the door for streaming as as a a commercial option they're doing very bold creative stuff with it Uh, they know that a lot of their audience uh probably does not have the discretionary budget to spend a hundred bucks or more on Blu-rays every month, but they can subscribe to the channel and see a lot of this stuff. And I think Criterion's definitely uh, winning a lot of loyalty from people who really want to say, tell me what's happening in cinema, past, present, and future. And uh, the channel, I think, is a great... um, a great format for them to do the things that just, you know, don't meet the the commercial viability of putting it on disc, but still worthy of attention. I mean, the, the, the main problem being there's just so much of it that nobody can really keep up with it all. But it's it's great to know that it's there and that we can look forward to a fresh uh, boost of, of uh, new horizons every month when they announce their new lineup. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, what's that to you? Sure. Yeah, I, I've as you touched on uh, Scott with their uh, '70s or their um, the sci-fi and the Afrofuturism. I just love the the curations on the channel, and uh, and unfortunately, I just don't have much time to watch the channel much. Uh, yeah. More more because I just have so many discs to watch, and I tend to gravitate to those first. But one that really um, jumped out at me, of course, the black film, I think, especially this year, was exceptional. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they, they had a, a great curation of, of black films uh, this year. But the, the 70s horror uh, curation was um, was enjoyable. Now, these weren't, you know, they're, they're, they're art horror, I guess, for the most part. There's some Cronenbergs, some others, Texas Chainsaw, which, you know, is debatable. Um, but it's so it's it's not like, you know, Friday the 13th, uh, not not tr- truly schlock horror. Uh, but uh, but interesting choices, and and I like that they released it in the uh, the month of October, so you can kind of celebrate Halloween, and it's still out there too. I think there was twenty uh, something films, uh, so if you want to check out some some seventies horror, and David, you might get to it on your podcast sooner <laughs> rather than later. Um, it's out there. I just love seventies film in general. Yeah, I did a little bit with Josh Hornbeck. There's a few 1971 horror films on one of his uh, Criterion Channel surfings. We did a few capsule reviews, so I, I'm on that. <laughs> right on. Uh, Jordan, how about you? 
You know, I really love that the channel gives me access to films that I can't track down other places that I've been really eager to see, like whether it's Ulrich Seidel's Paradise Trilogy or, you know, an early film by Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, but I think the best the best thing the channel does for me is when I find a small little perfect film that I didn't know that I would want to look for. So a couple things came up. Um, usually they are the shorts. Um, the Quay Brothers collection I thought was uneven, but when it was good, it was it was really good. There was this one called Rehearsals for Extinct Anatomies that I thought really stood out as an excellent film. And it was stop motion stuff if you guys didn't watch it. But my number one thing was just this short. Um, I don't remember the time. I think it's like under five minutes. It's called Michigan Avenue. It was a short film by Bette Gordon from 1973. And it was just an experimental film. It was her very first film. And it just, it showcases just the film language that appeals to a young filmmaker when they're first starting out. It, there was some stuff with like really slow motion. And it was very hard to tell that within the frame, if anything was even moving at first. <laughs> and then it just tells this really short story of this relationship with these two women. You move into this, the just the final shot very quickly where these two women are in bed together and the other one just slowly very slowly rolls out of bed and it's just it's it's beautiful in its economy and its execution it doesn't hit you over the head with what this is about and and of course it's it's also done very quickly um, i mean the viewing it is is a very short experience but i thought that was just a perfect film didn't know it existed so didn't know that i would want to find it seek it out unlike yorgos lanthimos who i already think is a brilliant filmmaker i'm keen to check out whatever he's done this was a really great um thing to to prompt an interest in bet gordon uh so that was my number one choice michigan avenue it's not on there now hopefully it will return yeah you definitely got me excited for it. i was like surely it'll be on youtube or something but i can't find it uh yeah um cool well that pretty much wraps us up uh i do want to go around for kind of closing statements anything you might be looking forward to in 2021 um if Trevor's still on, I'll start with him. I know Trevor might have had to jump. Trevor, are you there? I, I am still here. I you have any last Thank thoughts? You. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been a great year for Criterion. I agree with Aaron. You know, there's, there is a good thing about 2020, and it's this. And it's been so nice to sit with you all and discuss it because it's kind of a celebration for these, and it's a re reminder of friendships that have come about because of, you know, the shared interest in these films. Um, I am looking forward to next year. We know we know a quarter of the film, you know, of the releases uh, so far, including the Wong Kar Wai box set, which I know is getting quite a bit of flack. But, you know, I'm I'm excited for it. These films do mean something to me. So I'm not going into that and just thinking, oh, whatever. I don't care what's happened to them. Um, but I am I, I am anxious to have copies of them. Um, some of the ones that were harder to get. And I'm interested to see what the changes are and whether I latch onto them or not. So I am excited for that. I'm, I'm very excited for, for what uh, all of these kind of uh, deals uh, with uh, Netflix and uh, Amazon. And, you know, we've brought up some other, other things like that where, where this is coming. So it, it continues to be a source of delight and of comfort and of uh, you know uh, stimulation for me and i'm just glad to be a part of this uh, this group with you all too because um you guys are a big part of of why they mean so much to me so thank you yeah it's been too long since we've chatted trevor i I'm really glad you were able to make it tonight thanks <laughs> uh aaron what about you 
Uh, well, as, as Trevor mentioned, we, we know a quarter of the 2021 releases and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it feels weird to say this, but I don't see how they can top 2020 as far as the release late goes, of course. Um, and one car, why I, I think that's going to be uh, an exceptional box set. I haven't really caught up on what, uh, what people are complaining about, but you know, people find ways to complain about a lot of things. Um, w- one thing I'm looking forward to is, uh, which I think we've maybe seen a little bit, uh, of course, there was the New York Times article this year, which I think was more than fair about uh, about how Criterion does skew either white American or um, you know white European. Uh, of course, there's international cinema. There's there's plenty, and a lot of which you talked about tonight with WCP3. Um, but I, I would like to see them a little bit of an intentionality in bringing in more um, more black voices. I, I think they brought black stories, which David you talked about Claudine. I think that's very much a, an interesting black story. Um, so, so I, I'd like to see more of that. I think uh, with the the early release slate, you know, I think the um, minding the gap is a different different uh, perspective, and um, and I, I think uh, even though it's a white filmmaker, Secrets and Lies is a very interesting uh, story of uh, of race racial relationships. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to what they. Uh, I don't want to say how they react, but how they curate based on that um, uh, valuable feedback. Yeah, on that note, uh, I, I did mean to mention at some point during the show uh, that recently Criterion hired Ashley Clark as their curatorial director. And I don't want to reduce his contributions to just being about black films, although he's uh, made great contributions to the critical field in that arena. Uh, he's just a wonderful critical voice in general, and I always really liked his writing and his advocacy in general. So I'm extremely excited about what he'll bring to Criterion. Uh, David, how about you? You know, uh, yeah, pretty much echoing what's already been said. I'm I'm just looking forward to a new year. I'm looking forward to getting 2020 behind us. Uh, there will be a new political uh, uh, kind of zeitgeist in the air. Uh, Criterion, I think, has taken you know pretty good feedback, and again, their ownership of the fact that you know some of the diversity and some of the um, insulation, if you will, of their of their uh, you know kind of central place in the in the art house scene is has, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of great things that have happened, but, but there's also been some blind spots, and they, they've acknowledged that, and I think they've taken pretty uh, aggressive action. And I've, I've made the comment in, in years past that a lot of that, you know, art house canon really is is getting pretty tapped out. I mean, there's there's still little nuggets here and there. Maybe there's things that they haven't gotten the rights to. You know, there's a few Tarkovskys and other, you know, classics out there that uh, will perhaps and, and hopefully uh, bear the CC logo in the near future. But I really I'm intrigued by the, um, you know, man push cart and some of these other, you know, directors from off of those more uh, familiar trails and uh, and just could, they seem to be really expanding the horizons quite a bit and, and bringing new voices in both contemporary and from the past. So uh, it doesn't seem like they just want to kind of ride on their laurels. They want to, they want to continue to innovate and, and break new ground, and, and I'm, I'm along for the ride, you know. So I'm looking forward to whatever they have in store. Uh, the, the early signs are promising, and I'm, I'm sure there's great surprises and delights uh, yet to be discovered. Jordan, any poetry to take us home? I think I'm all poeted out, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I will say um, that, you know, I would like to echo what Trevor said, first of all, that, you know, it is is always an honor to be, you know, part of this community and to feel that camaraderie and friendship. Um, it's 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 a warm and and happy place. And I'm happy to be here with you guys um, in terms of 2021. I mean, I have a lot of faith in Criterion as a brand and their curation and their strategy for maintaining their own 
uh, relevance, but also making sure they incorporate as many voices as possible. I think they're demonstrating that that need, um, and so I, I trust their choices. Things that you know that I specifically want to see, um, aside from those uh, <laughs> those uh, those pillars of the film canon that we haven't seen. You know, I would like them to try. You know, if there's anyone listening, Criterion, there's a whole wealth of video art and performance art. Mm. And we've seen a little, a tiny, tiny bit of that, but stuff that like is never available. It's in art galleries and museums, and then it just kind of vanishes unless you're specifically involved with an involved with an archive that has that material. But it does exist. It desperately needs preservation, right? Because these things aren't being archived uh, properly. Um, and it will disappear if someone doesn't take an interest. And I think Criterion, um, even if it's just for the channel, um, this is not in danger of going anywhere. But like Matthew Barney would be a great example of bringing some attention to that area of filmmaking. You know, plenty of people saw the Cremister cycle when it was in theaters. But because of the relationship as an, that those films have as an art object, I'm not sure a home video release will ever happen. But it could come to the channel. Um, and it probably could. Things like that, or or, or performance artists like Lena Montana, like Montano. This work is out there. Um, it and I and I think that Criterion could bring even you know something else into the fold, and this would be a great opportunity. Well, I'm going to go out stumping for the pillars of uh, cinema history. I'm afraid. Um, I'm really excited for Olivia Sayce's Demon Lover, uh, which Janice just announced they'll be doing a new restoration of, releasing digitally at the Film Society, and then. Uh, signals almost certain criterion release eventually uh i'm excited for a lot of the studio canal stuff coming home um we're getting some of the wong car y stuff back in we're getting the boon well set brings stuff back in hope to see more of that and i'd really love to see they got this netflix deal going other side of the wind let's make it happen um so that's my little pitch for the classical period pillars of cinema but yeah, I'm definitely excited and intrigued by all the things that you guys suggested and are also excited for. And thanks so much for joining me, everybody. I really had a great time going through the year in Criterion, which, was, as we all said many times over, was a really exceptional year. And I think uh, we everyone spotlighted different avenues of that experience and really appreciate you guys' contributions and time. Uh, couldn't enjoy it more. Thanks, Scott. It was great. Yeah, that's fantastic. So happy to be part of this again. And you guys are the best. <laughs> thanks, guys. And listeners, we'll, uh, we don't have any immediate uh, recording plans, but we've definitely talked about some titles. So we'll get, we'll get something out there sooner than later. So stick with us. Thanks for always for listening. Get you next time. Mm-hmm.